the more exposed neighborhoods that we found are the more newly gentrifying neighborhoods that are pushing price points over a million bucks. And those are the ones that seem to be hit the hardest because they generally have higher financed buyers. It's time for the Creative Real Estate Podcast, your source for out-of-the-box real estate investing strategies brought to you by ecospace.com. Now here's your hosts, Adam and Jason. Welcome back to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam AAA Adams, and today I'm with Tucker Merrihue, who is going to help us understand how to be better at direct mail. So if you're trying to get sellers to, uh, you know, owners to sell you their property, if you're trying to go direct to the seller, then I think you're going to learn a thing or two today. Uh, you can also find Tucker, by the way, at his podcast. He's the host of the Real Deals podcast and founder of the Deal Finder Academy. He is has been claimed, he's been nicknamed the direct mail marketing king. Uh, so that's why we have him on the show. So I'm excited to have you. Tucker, tell us, go all the way back to the first deal you ever did. What year was it? Were you scared? Were you nervous? Were you excited? Were you, what was going through your mind? And tell us a little bit about that first deal. Sure. Um, well, the first one, I guess I'll fast forward to the end and then I'll back up. It actually ended up being a great deal. Not because I was smart, not because I was great at what I did, but just because I rode the market up on that first wave back in the early 2000s. But finding the deal, um, it was kind of a classic scenario. Back then, remember, the business was not nearly as sophisticated as it is today, right? We barely had the internet. I mean, we had the internet, but we didn't have apps. We didn't have all these crazy things, CRMs, um, you know, wholesaling hadn't turned into this giant technology business. It was really just driving around and finding houses and seeing if they were for sale, right? And so, what I had done is uh, I'd driven around a neighborhood that I wanted to buy for myself because this was also a house hack. This was before Brandon Turner from Bigger Pockets actually coined this thing called house hacking, which was really just buying a house, cleaning it up, and letting your buddies move in and pay most of the mortgage, right? But I drove around this area and I found this house that was right on the corner of kind of a busier street and, um, you know, kind of a side street. And there was a, a for sale sign that was kind of, it wasn't straight up. It was kind of leaning at like a 45 degree angle in the front yard. And you couldn't tell exactly whether it was a for rent sign or for sale sign because it was for sale by owner-ish type sign. It was dirty. It was white. And uh, so I stopped and I got out to see if it was either for rent or for sale. And when I did that, this guy poked his head out the front door and uh, asked me what I was doing. And of course I said, well, you know, is the home for sale? Turns out it was, I still remember the guy's name. His name was Franco Ferrua. He was a really strange character, but he wanted to sell the house because, you know, I'm here in Portland, Oregon. He was from California. He'd moved up here. And for those of you guys that are familiar with the Pacific Northwest, you know that it rains, I don't know, eight months out of the year here fairly consistently. And so he had what they call seasonal depression syndrome. So I ran across my first quote unquote, motivated seller for reasons outside of finances. He just wanted to get the hell out of Portland because it rains too much here. I mean, you live in uh, Colorado, right? So you get a lot of sunshine there, which very different. And I lived in Colorado for five years. So I had a little bit of culture shock coming back here with the rain, but he wanted to leave. I wanted to buy a house to live in. Uh, it wasn't like a great house. It was an older house. It was 40s built. There was a little bit of updating to it. Not a lot. There was a basement that needed to be finished out. And um, so anyway, I went in, sat down uh, in the living room with him. At the time, to kind of treat his seasonal depression syndrome, he had a tanning bed in his living room. And what he did is he lifted it up and then he let the light just kind of beam on him while he sat on the couch and watched TV. So it was a very strange deal. He had that on while we were talking, uh, sitting in his living room. And 
fast forward, we ultimately came to uh, an agreement. Um, we bought the house. I bought it for an okay price um, at the time. Uh, you know, it wasn't full market value, but it wasn't hugely discounted. And then after I bought it, I went in, put some sweat equity and I finished out the basement, uh, cleaned it up a little bit. Uh, I moved in two buddies. One lived in the new bedroom that I plugged in the basement. One lived on the main floor. And then I lived in the loft bedroom upstairs. And between those guys, they paid basically all my mortgage for almost three years. And uh, then I went around and I sold it, uh, not really foreseeing that we were going to have a market crash. I just saw that there was a good amount of money on the table that I could take off. And I was about 25, 26 years old and, you know, a good amount of money sounded fun to me. I could go buy a boat and do other things. So I sold it and um, I made about 200000 of tax-free dollars on that first sale. And that was my first house hack and that was my first deal. And uh, from there, obviously, the business has gotten a lot more sophisticated. We do a lot more things, but that was the very simple kind of first deal with, um, you know, a quote-unquote motivated seller. What year was that? That was 2002. 2002. And when was your next investment? What year was it? The next one was 2000. Let's see. That was the end of 2002, beginning of 2003. And the next one was at the beginning of 2004. Um, I bought a few that year, two of which I still own, uh, the rental properties, one of which was a duplex. Um, so I did dabble a little bit in multifamily early, uh, not big multifamily, but it was basically a duplex that had four bedrooms on each side. It was, a, just, it was under rented. It was in terrible shape. And so I cleaned it up a little bit. I filled it with tenants and I actually resold that one. So it ended up being about an eight month flip where I owned it as a landlord in the, in the middle, but the market kept going up and up and it was a little bit of slum lording. So I ended up flipping that one. I kept the other two that I still own today, like I mentioned. uh, And I made about 80 grand on that flip there. And from there, I was kind of off to the races. I I had my foot in another bucket of the real estate world. I I was doing mortgages. I had a mortgage company as well that I had started in 2005. So, I was kind of straddling, you know, being an investor um, and being a service provider in the real estate business at the same time. And that kind of went side by side all the way up until 2008, um, which is just post like the end of 2008. So, post the, the financial collapse within the real estate industry. And that's when I decided that I wanted to kind of leave the service provider side of the business as a mortgage loan officer and a a mortgage company owner and step into the world of house flipping and real estate development full time. Um, And so here we are. uh, What was that? 2008. So 12 years later. What's your big focus today? So today, uh, my focus is twofold. One is high-end new construction. So that's kind of our sweet spot. We build, you know, million two to three million dollar homes here in Portland. Uh, I know it's a widespread, but we mainly build in an area called Lake Oswego and there's just, there's a wide disparity in price point um, depending on where you build in that town. And so that's our new construction. And then we try and backfill around that with kind of quicker money, let's call it, with our renovation stuff. And we do do some wholesaling too, not a ton. Um, We take down most of the stuff that we find that's a good deal. And then, so we either renovate it. Um, For example, there's one we're looking at right now that's more of an entry level property in that same area. And it would be a quicker kind of, you know, clean it out, paint it, put it back on the market. I mean, a little bit of, there's probably a few, there's never just cleaning and painting, but there's a few other things. Um, But that's kind of our quicker money bucket. And then our higher end new construction is kind of longer term. Got it. Got it. So on these larger deals, how do you fund uh, new construction, a $3 million house, for instance? So what we do generally is kind of a combination of private money and our own capital that we've built up over time. Um, and a a line of credit um, that we've got for about a million bucks. And so generally what we'll do is we'll go in and we'll finance the acquisition with private money and then we'll pay for all of the vertical construction. 
Um, it, it's a little simpler route in terms of not needing draws and things like that. We're not involving a bank. Um, and the, the private money lenders that we have are comfortable with, you know, the prospectus of basically we're buying the dirt for this, we're going to build for that, we're going to be vested as well, and then we're going to sell for this. And so that's generally how we do it. And it's worked out pretty well for us. And that's been kind of our system um, for you know, the last few years. We're recording um, end of May 2020 during coronavirus. And in Denver, where I live, there's been a lot of uh, properties that are doing really, really well. Like single family, are they're crushing it. You know, there's a very small amount of inventory on hand. And so it's still very much a seller's market. Unless you hit the $1 million range. In Denver, uh, as we're recording this, the there's a three times or four times the amount of inventory on the 1 million plus houses. Based on what might happen with the economy or what is happening today, what are you seeing with new construction on high-end builds and is it concerning to you? Well, first off, it's a good question um, and it's one that I've thought a lot about. I mean, if you, if you had asked me that question two months ago versus today, my answer would be slightly different uh, because two months ago, I, I saw an immediate give back in that higher end of about 10% based on what you know, things were for sale for and what buyers were willing to pay. A lot of that had to do with just the overall feeling around the pandemic and the uncertainty, but a, a bigger part of that had to do with the fact that jumbo financing kind of went away. So the more exposed neighborhoods that we found are the more newly gentrifying neighborhoods that are pushing price points over a million bucks. And those are the ones that seem to be hit the hardest because they generally have higher financed buyers. In your more traditionally higher end neighborhoods, you get a more of a, a cash flush buyer, bigger down payments, they're rolling more equity, they have more family money, all these different things are in play, which requires their need for jumbo financing generally much less, or they just have more money in general. And so we saw less of a give back in those types of pockets versus the the newly gentrifying pockets. And when I say gentrifying, I'm not saying like maybe it's a bad area turning into a good area, but maybe it's an area like in Denver, for example, there's plenty of areas where infill new construction is happening and it's changing the landscape in terms terms of price points for the area, right? You used to have just a bunch of simple Denver homes, you know, brick ranches, things like that. Well, now some of those are getting tore down and you're putting in, you know, 4,500 square foot homes that are selling for a million five, million seven, two, two. You know, I even have a friend that sold one for 3.1 this past week in Denver. I think it was the second most expensive home sold this year so far in Denver from what I was told. I, I could be wrong. But, you know, that was an area that was not from my, at least my initial research, it was not one of those newly gentrifying areas, but more, more of a classic type area. And so for us moving forward, we're kind of pulling back the reins on those areas that are newly gentrifying. We sold one a couple of weeks ago that was in a newly gentrifying area and we took about a 10% hit versus what we probably would have sold it for without the pandemic happening. And so now moving forward, what we're looking at is, okay, we want to buy houses that you know we can tear down in areas where they're classic, right? They're, they're historically higher end. And so we can put that great high end product, you know, out there in that type of area. And it's kind of like, you know, the simplest way to look at it is an A plus lot, A plus area, right? We're not talking about, a, a, you know, a B plus A minus area that we're putting an A plus product in that's, that's kind of on the come up still. So that's what we're looking at kind of moving forward. Okay. Uh, Want to dive into any 
info that you can share with us so that we can be more successful at doing uh, direct mail marketing. So what, uh, what would be the, like the few things that most people miss or that, you know, they just kind of fail at and how do you do it differently? So direct mail is an interesting topic, right? Um, it's one that a lot of people fail at, I've found, mainly because if they don't get instant gratification, and we're kind of in an instant gratification society, they tend to say, you know what, this doesn't work, the ROI is not there, and I just don't want to do it. So I always equate it to the fact that people take like a tour of duty in direct mail, right? They do their tour of duty, and then they go home, and they say, you know, I'm, I'm done. And so we started doing direct mail, just to kind of give you some context here, back in 2010. When we initially got into this world of, of real estate investing full-time, we were buying REOs, we were buying at the courthouse steps. That world changed and we had to kind of figure out, okay, how can we control our inventory without having to compete against all these other people that are kind of running back into the market? And so when we started direct mail, it was much easier than it is today. You could send 200 yellow letters and you could get 50 phone calls and you could whittle those down to a few deals. You just had to do it, right? That was it. That was the simple thing. And a lot of people just didn't do it. Well, now a lot of people are doing it. So you have to do it better. You have to do it smarter. And so the best advice that I can give people is number one, you know, don't pull a ginormous list and just blast it one time, right? Some people will pull, you know, a, a huge absentee owner list, right? We're, we're talking single family, um, you know, in the, in the world of single family investing here. But, you know, you pull an absentee list and you mail that and let's say there's 5,000 on it and you do one round of mailings and you get three crappy calls or maybe 10 crappy calls and it whittles down to no deals. And you're like, you know what? I just spent 2,500 bucks on this mailing or two grand if I'm doing postcards. I, I'm over it, right? I don't want to do it anymore. And so people throw in the towel. What I say is think about direct mail is kind of like a snowball, right? Start it very small and kind of grow the snowball over time. So that way, number one, you can really learn the game. But number two is, you know, you're not spending all of your marketing dollars at once at the first go round. Because, you know, I'm sure you know, and all the people that you've talked to from doing the show, talking to sellers, right? Whether it's, you know, you talking to people that own apartments or me talking to people that own single family homes, it's kind of a, a, an acquired skill set, right? You get better at it with time. You, you get better at kind of connecting with them. You get better at getting them to know, like, and trust you. You get better at valuing the as asset that you're talking about and letting them understand what you think the value is in a way that doesn't offend them necessarily, right? And so that's, that takes time to build that skill set. And so if you spend all this money right away and you have this in, you know, all these calls coming in and you're going to have number one, a hard time recognizing value because you just, you don't know the area, the area is so massive that you're mailing to. It's hard to recognize a deal right out of the gate. Uh, but number two is your skill set's not that great yet. So what I suggest is number one, find a pocket, find a place you want to be. When you're in the world of multifamily, it's much simpler because you're basically pulling some type of multifamily list, which generally there's a lot less of those. So you're pulling this list. It's a smaller list. In the world of single family, you can pull a ginormous list. So instead of pulling that giant list, start with a little area. And then within that area, start pulling lists within that area. And so one of the things that we do, and it's worked well for us for a long time, is driving for dollars. And so, you know, that's generally your most obvious um, type of lead because visually the house is not in good shape, right? So if it's visually not in good shape, then, you know, that's a good candidate to buy at some type of a um, non-retail price. Um, so that would be one list. Another list would be 
Um, for example, we, we pull a list. It's a trust owned properties, right? Anything that's owned in a trust. Um, you know, a lot of investors don't mail that list because they think they kind of equate that to being also owned by like a, a corporation or an LLC or something like that. It's a more sophisticated seller. It is a more sophisticated seller, but it's also a seller that's planning for estate purposes, right? So you can avoid probate by putting it in a trust. So we'll mail the trust list and the trust list gets you two types of leads. One is going to be a pre-probate type lead. Somebody that, you know, the mom and dad live in the house. They need to go to a living. They need to sell the house to pay for assisted living. They call you before that happens, right? And it's usually on a trust list. Number two is going to be mom and dad passed away and, you know, they need to basically liquidate the estate, but they don't have to go through probate. So, you talk to them on the back end after mom, you know, maybe mom passed away earlier, dad passed away later, vice versa. And they call you once that's done. They don't have to go through probate. They can basically do a transaction with you much quicker instead of waiting for probate to happen. So, that would be an example of like a, a filtered or more specialty type list instead of just direct mail. Um, so that's, that's a way to kind of add to it, right? So start with a small pocket, create a driving for dollars list, layer on some other lists, like a trust list, um, maybe a long-term ownership list, somebody that's 65 and older. Maybe it's like a, a list of like quick claim deeds that got uh, recorded that, um, you know, or a, a related party list where maybe something got transferred at a very low dollar amount for uh, any given area, right? Which usually indicates kind of an interfamily transfer or a non-arms link transaction, right? So you, you start with a small area, you create a baseline list of driving for dollars, you layer on these other lists for that same area, then you start mailing, right? And you mail at a, a manageable budget. You're not spending a ton of money, but you're mailing to great leads. And then when those calls come in, you start to build your skills. You start to talk to these people. You start to recognize value. And then as you get better, you expand the areas that you're mailing. You expand the areas that you understand value. And, and you can kind of expand the amount that you're spending on marketing. And if people do that, I've found they tend to have more success and longevity in this world of direct-to-seller marketing than if they just go out and they blast the list and they send a bunch of mailers and they hope they get some motivated seller calls. I love it. I love it. So, we'll call it the snowball effect. Um, find a small pocket area first off and then select uh, lists that you can find within this area and then stack the list together to really narrow it down and then just mail that small list several times instead of trying to give 50,000 people. Uh, one of the things that I like about that is, A, the, it's actually not easy to be there and answer the phones and to drive out to these properties. And when, when you have like a list of as many as you could possibly think and you only do it one time, there is going to be some calls just because you're going to have, you know, the, uh, the low-hanging fruit. There, so, there is going to be calls. But if, if you have like seven calls in one day, it might be difficult for you to like get out to all seven of these places or even answer all the calls because you're, you might be sitting down with a seller. So, the way you have it is, is to kind of slowly roll this out as a, as a small snowball and it's going to slowly get bigger but it's going to get bigger in at a rate that you can you can start to manage instead of just getting hit by a big old avalanche exactly and then as you grow it right okay you can add support staff or people to your business to kind of help take those calls if they're coming in on a you know hourly basis on a daily basis right versus you know random you know five or six calls over the course of a week which you could handle on your own so you kind of have to grow with direct mail, right? You don't just go out and you, you don't run your direct mail like you've got this operation where you have an acquisitions manager and somebody answer the phones constantly. You don't want to go out and send that amount of mail right away. 
to, you know, maybe a, a less quality list than you should be mailing anyway, um, you, you want to grow with it. So the snowball analogy is really the simplest way that I've found to kind of get it to make sense to people. And everybody that I know that, that takes that approach and sticks with it has a lot of success. And the other thing too is remember this is direct mail is a, it's a timing game, right? You know, you can mail somebody but let's say we're mailing a trust list, right? And let's say mom and dad put their, their property in the name of a trust uh, a year ago and nothing's wrong with them. They have no health problems. They don't need to go to assisted care. They're happy where they're at. Well, they're going to get your mail piece and they're not going to do anything, right? There's no reason for them to call you. So it's a consistency game too. But let's fast forward three months, six months, right? And let's say something happens, health problems happen. So, you know, somebody passes away, unfortunately, you know, the other one is having a hard time, you know, being there by themselves. It's time to move into assisted care and being with a community and other people to kind of live the best last chapter of their life. Now, when you get that mail piece or they get that mail piece or their family members do, now there's a reason for them to call you. So the reasons are different for different lists. But my point is, is that, you know, you, you have to be consistent with the farm area and the people that you market to because someday, you know, one day they may not need you, the next day they do. And when they do, that's when they pick up the phone or when they think that maybe they might need you, that's when they actually pick up the phone and call you. So, you know, people also look at response rate over like a very, you know, small amount of time. And I just think that that's a bad way to look at direct mail because you're basically saying over the small amount of time, you're measuring it based on just the people that need you at that moment in time. That doesn't mean that there aren't a bunch of other people on that list that won't need you over the course of time, but you're, you're rating your effectiveness of direct mail over that much time when really you should be looking at it like that. And so when people look at it on that small, finite amount of time, they say, screw it, I'm done. It doesn't work. I've done my tour of duty, right? But the reality is, is that if you do it right, it's really not that costly to your business and you can still be in front of those people that need you over this amount of time, right? And that's, that's really the key because that's when you're getting in front of those great opportunities that are off market, especially right now, as you said, a lot of single family is just, it's flying off the shelves. It's a very hot time, right? So buying on market, it's just, it's difficult to get that much of a discount. And so for us, we found that the best way to get those discount, discounts is to go off market and to kind of utilize the strategies that we just talked about. Good stuff. Give me one uh, if you have, if you have one just on messaging with the postcards and, and letters. Um, so this is a messaging question. I'm going to just say absentee owners. And I know that's a pretty broad statement, absentee owners, cause it's like what kind of absentee owner, but in general, I know a lot of, uh, listeners who are thinking about reaching out to people and, and doing direct mail. And so that absentee owner list is, uh, is a list that I think a lot of them are going to go after. So what is something you can do to stand out with your messaging to somebody who doesn't live in the house? So, I mean, I break down messaging to multiple different parts, right? You know, your typical mail or piece that somebody sends, right? Is let's say some type of a yellow postcard, right? Or a pink postcard or a white postcard or something very simple. And maybe they have some form of printed handwritten writing on there. The new thing now is maybe a Google street view shot of the house to kind of creep them out a little bit and then make, hopefully they call because they go, well, how did you get that picture on there? I'm interested. I'll call you, right? That That's kind of the we're in a monkey see monkey do business. So people see something and everybody else does it. I try and be different from that as much as I can always have. And so I break down messaging into multiple different components. The first thing is going to be the packaging, right? So it's not just about the message. It's about getting their attention, 
communicating your message and keeping their attention to the point that they remember you, right? So for me, it's about packaging to start. What does that envelope look like? What does that thing that they look at in the stack of mail look like? Does it jump out to them? Is it the thing that they will open first? Uh, You know, apples to apples, if they get a stack of mail, which one are they going to pull out first and open, right? So we always try and do crazy stuff with our envelopes. Um, You know, we've done camel print envelopes. We've done, you know, just all kinds of crazy patterns, um, you know, strange stuff that uh, just stands out. It gives people a reason to be interested in the mail piece. Um, The second thing that we do is we have a a machine here in the office that actually does handwriting, right? It handwrites. And the machine was originally created for athletes and politicians to sign books um, at scale but you can program it to literally write letters with a ballpoint pen. So it's, it's legitimately handwritten, um, you know, uh, marketing piece. And so that the, the packaging gets their attention. We have a handwritten message, which keeps their attention. And, and the reality is that the message can say anything. It, it just has to highlight the fact that you're interested in purchasing their property. And it's a simple process, right? Your, your process is different than the retail process. The retail process is realtors, uh, you know, inspections, repairs, um, negotiations, uh, you know, just cleaning the house, pain in the ass, right? So you want to just communicate some type of simple message that alleviates the pain in the ass, right? Where you're essentially asking them to trade some equity for ease of transaction, whatever that looks like. The, the message, in my opinion, is not overly important. It just has to convey some version of that, right? And so, the, but the message appears personal in nature because of the way that it's written. It's not putting out in mass scale because we do it in a handwritten font uh, that's not printed. It's actually written. Um, and then from there, we also include, you know, on some of our mailers, like a grabber, right? A grabber piece for those people that aren't familiar with direct mail is something you insert with the direct mail piece that I believe keeps their attention. It allows them to remember you, right? So for example, we did in a part of Portland that's very into dogs, right? Portland's a very dog city, right? So a part of Portland's very into dogs. So we created these uh, things, we called them George Bucks. I've got an English Mastiff that's about 200 pounds. His name's George. We created a $2 bill and we put George in the middle of it. So I called him George Bucks. And I put that George Buck in with the mailer as kind of a just to make you memorable, to make you stand out, to, to leave a lasting impression. So the, the important pieces here are number one, what gets their attention? Number two, what keeps their attention? And number three is what allows them to remember you over anybody else. And so if you combine all those things and you can think outside the box, you can do crazy stuff. You don't have to do exactly the stuff that I just said, but if you kind of use that equation, you'll have more success with direct mail. Last question that I wanted to ask you on on getting all this done. I remember when I was doing direct mail, the hardest part was answering the phones and, you know, our staff. Uh, we were just beginning. We were just starting out. And I didn't have a script ready to go to talk with sellers. I just wanted to get into their house. I just wanted to just set the appointment. And, you know, we had we had good and we had bad. Uh, from your experience, and you've been doing real estate since I think 2002, um, from your experience and, and 10 years in direct mail, what do you set up for the call scripts for when someone calls? Like, what's just like one or two tips or tricks that, that are going to help the listener be more efficient at, recogni- at either vetting the seller if they're a real seller or uh, a tip or trick that basically is, is human psychology that it will definitely get you into the door. What have you seen there? I mean, I would say the only real trick is going to be to get a price out of them. 
everything else is just being a normal human being and having a, a conversation that flows and not having an awkward personality, right? Which is natural for some people, takes practice for others, right? Most people, it takes practice, right? And that's just the reality. You're going to have a bunch of calls where you feel like you sucked and you didn't get what you wanted out of the call and it was herky-jerky and it didn't flow well and you feel like they probably don't want to talk to you again, uh, you know, if given a choice, right? But you can work through that and get better. So the the, the structure that we follow and Again, you'll get better at this with time, but if you just follow the structure, eventually you'll get good at it and you'll be able to kind of pluck the opportunities out of it and get in these houses that you want to. But somebody calls in, number one, they usually want to know how you got their information, right? A, a lot of people will hit you with that right away. And that can be a very adversarial question or it can be one that you give them an answer that makes sense and all of a sudden it's no longer a roadblock from you connecting with them, right? And so for us, we always say, well, we drive around the neighborhoods that we do projects in and we kind of identify houses that are interesting to us. We then use our title company and public records to look up who owns them. We send you a letter and we hope that you call. And if you do, then we're happy to talk to you, right? So that's a much simpler drawn out, um, you know, full explanation of how that happens versus like, well, it's public records, right? That could be kind of a snarky way. It's not a good way to start the conversation. So when people ask questions, if you give them a make sense answer, even if that's not true, right? Even if you pulled a, a filtered list and you just mailed the whole filtered list and you didn't actually see the house, give them that answer. And now all of a sudden it makes sense why you mailed them. Now they'll open up and they're more willing to talk to you. And so from there, what we do is we generally like to find out okay, what's the situation, right? Are you living in the home? You know, is it your folks' home? Is it a rental? Um, you know, in a perfect world, you know, when do you want to sell this house, right? And usually that gets them talking. It tells the, you know, the situation surrounding it because the situation has a lot to do with whether or not they should sell this house on a retail market or whether or not they should sell it on the wholesale market. Are they going to be willing to trade equity for ease of transaction? And a lot of that has to do with their situation. The other part has to do with, do they have the equity to trade, right? But once we get that, that usually checks a box, right? That says, okay, there are some external motivations around this and reasons why they may trade some equity for ease of transaction. The next thing that we'll roll into is kind of get a a general description of the home, right? Has anything been updated? You know, are there any challenges, issues? You know, is there an oil tank for an oil furnace? Has it been decommissioned? If there was an oil furnace, you know, how new is the roof? How new are the windows? Um, what about the HVAC system? Um, you know, have you done any updates to the kitchens, the bathrooms? We'll kind of walk them through the house and kind of get some general information. We then fill that out on our lead sheet to kind of give a, you know, a thumbprint of what that house looks like, at least on paper that's kind of the rapport building section, right? That's the section where they're giving you information. They're usually pretty easy um, to get that information from them. And so it's not like you're pushing a snowball uphill. You're not, it's not a battle to get that information, but it allows you to connect with them and kind of continue the conversation. The last part, and this is where most people kind of drop the ball or screw up or just feel uncomfortable is asking for price, right? Because when you go ask for price, a lot of people will say, hey, smart guy, you mailed me. What are you going to pay, right? And that's, that's where people hit a wall and that's where they go, okay, well, I'll do some numbers and give you a call back, right? We've never, ever, ever bought a house where somebody hits us with that and we say, we'll do some numbers and call you back. We just never have because nine out of 10 times, well, let's say this, 10 out of 10 times, if somebody picks up the phone and calls you, they know what they want for the house or at least an idea of it. They've looked at Zillow, I can guarantee you that. If you looked at the cookies on their computer, they just looked at Zillow before they called you or at least within the last 24 hours. So for them to say that they have no idea what the home's worth and what they want for it, they're just lying to you. So you have to kind of, again, it's a question that you have to make it make sense to them why they need to tell you, right? And so for us, our make it make sense, we'll go through like 
we'll take three runs at them. If the first one, they, they hit us with a wall and they're like, well, you mailed us, you tell me, right? So the first thing we'll say is, well, look, you know, generally we don't do a whole lot of research until we talk to somebody like this. But, you know, at the same time, we don't want to waste your time and ours. So if you at least have a ballpark idea of what you want for the home, you know, that would be helpful. And sometimes we'll even differentiate, well, what do you think the home's worth and what do you want to sell it for, right? We'll even ask two questions. Sometimes it'll show the disparity there and they're okay uh, taking less than what they think it's worth uh, based on the situation. And then if they're still like, well, you know, I don't know, blah, blah, blah. And we'll say, look, you know, we, we're interested in the house, but you know, if you go to the car lot and you're looking at cars, you want to know what it's worth before you're going to test drive it, right? And so, you know, I want to be able to do some more research on this. I want to be able to come out and take a look at it, but I got to know if we're close, right? And if that still doesn't work, we say, look, if we don't get a number from you, we always come in low. That's just the way we do. If you give us at least a ballpark idea, we can try and bridge the gap when we need to, right? But we'll always be super conservative and come in low if we go blind. That's just the way that we operate. And usually by then, they break and they at least give you a number. And the people that go all the way to the third one, they generally want 120 you know, percent of retail anyway. Uh, the people that want the, you know, that you're going to get the best deal from, they'll tell you right away. The people that tell you after you go through this whole, you know, song and dance with them, they usually want 120% of retail. And that's why they don't want to tell you because deep down, they're ultimately embarrassed that they want that much money and they don't think that you're going to pay, but they still want to continue this pipe dream that maybe they'll go to a cash buyer that'll pay them 120% of what it's worth. So we take them through that process. And if we get that amount of information from them, then you can screen it and you can say, yes, it's worth going to see, or you know what, we're probably not a good fit for you. And that way you're not wasting your time driving around to 15 appointments when really you should go to two. Very valuable stuff. I really appreciate it, Tucker. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with the final five. This episode of the Creative Real Estate Podcast is brought to you by both you and brought to you by the show itself. And we just wanted to say thank you, Jason. I really appreciate having you as a listener. And we have an ask. We've got a quick ask. If you have... Uh, been listening to the show for a little while, you love the show, and you haven't taken the time to leave a rating and a review, I just wanted to ask to see if you wouldn't mind uh, going into iTunes and doing a written review as well as a rating. Um, so that's our only ask. Let's get back to the show. And we're back with Mr. Tucky. Tucker, you know what I was thinking? Right before we started, Tucker, your, you told me about your um, teacher, who said, uh, what was it? like? No, I will not marry no. you. Uh, making a joke about my last yeah. name, of course. Yeah, so I was, I, was, I was already trying to think about what he was saying, and I said your first name wrong, which is funny, because Tucker's easy. Mary Hugh wasn't as easy. Well, it's a good story then, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yes, memorable. Just like when you put those things in your, in, your, uh, in your cards. That's right. Okay. All right, let's get here. What is the most creative deal you've ever done? Ooh, most creative deal we ever done. Um, we did a subject to deal uh, that we wholesaled that was zero money out of pocket for us. Uh, we got about a $30,000 assignment fee and then the guy that bought it from us renovated it and sold it. So it was a truly no money down deal that we wholesaled and got paid right away. Um, and then he retailed it and made money too. So it was a win-win-win all the way around and the guy that sold it to us um, was happy as well. Fantastic. What's a book you recommend? Um, I say this all the time because I don't read a ton of books, but the absolute best one that everybody should read is How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's basically the key to life and getting to understand how to get people to know, like, and trust you. Where were you five years ago and where will you be five years from today? 
Five years ago, we were kind of uh, on this ascend into the world of high-end new construction homes. And, you know, five years from today, I think we'll be building, um, you know, probably more and more of those. And uh, we may even get into the world of multifamily because I need some tax deductions. So five years from now, we'll probably be, have our feet in both of those buckets. Good stuff. How, what is the best way that you add value to others? The best way is probably um, via two podcasts that I have. Uh, one is a national show called The Real Deals Podcast you mentioned. One is a local show called The Portland Real Estate Podcast. We've got 300 and some episodes of the national show, 100 and some of the local show, and it's all things real estate. So we give away the farm on both of them. Good stuff. Uh, Tucker, thanks for coming on. Thank you for being here. What is the one way that the listener should find you or get a hold of you? Um, find me on Facebook. Uh, you can find me on Instagram. Just search my name, Tucker Merrihue. Um, remember the joke. You'll remember my last name. <laughs> and um, other than that, you can also go to therealdealspodcast.com. Listen to that. Reach out to us there. Awesome. Tucker, thank you for coming on. I'm going to let you go. But until next time, my friend, think outside the box. Thank you so much for listening to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. And if you got value from this episode of the podcast, please take the time to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Give us a written rating and a review. We'd really, really appreciate it. I'm going to let you go. But until next time, think outside the box.